Good morning. Please rise. Today our reading is from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This can be found on page 570 in our little blue Bibles in the back seats of the chairs. Um, and for anyone who may not have one, these are for you to have. Hear the word of the Lord. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equally with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed him on him the name that is above every name, so that by the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thus says God's word. Let's pray over the hearing of the word. Father, we thank you for the truth of your scripture. We thank you that it is eternal and that it benefits us in its hearing and in the application of it to our lives. We, we thank you that you have given it to us. We thank you that the things that you have said in it have been confirmed in the coming of Christ and that all the fullness of all the scriptures find their resolution in Christ. And we thank you for that. He is the fulfiller of the law, the answer to all of the prophecies, the thing to which we look forward in the new coming day, Lord. And so we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that as we progress through this season of Advent and recognition of that truth, Lord, that we would not be swept away by the things that are so prevalent in our culture with commercialism and materialism and secularism, God, that we miss the opportunity to pause and remember how this began and, and Lord, to give you the thanks and the praise and the worship that it should elicit in us who believe in your great name. Lord, I pray for our ears to hear. I pray for my tongue to speak well the mysteries of the incarnation of Jesus today. And we just commit the rest of this time together in your word to you. And we, uh, we uh, just honor you with our time this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I, I want to just... Um, Pause. I know that this, if, if I was, you know, at a seminar about how to construct the, worship, the perfect worship service, this would not be the instruction. But I don't want to pass on what uh, Pastor David shared with us uh, this morning. So I'd like to, with, with uh, your cooperation, return to prayer right after we just got done praying and reserve this time to pray for um, both uh, Scott and, and uh, Mike as they prepare for this funeral and all that it could mean for the gospel. So will you join me in that uh, quickly? Father, I just I thank you for, God, the faithfulness that Scott and Mike have continually, continually operated in among the people of Austria, people that 
by and large, have rejected the gospel and have turned their hearts towards lesser things and more secular things. But God, Scott went several decades ago believing that you had reserved for yourself a people among the Austrians. And so, Lord, we pray that in the light of this tragedy where the enemy of men's and women's souls has laughed and thought that he has has stolen another and, and just brought havoc and, and chaos and torment to those that are left behind by this young man. Lord, I pray that you would get the last laugh and that you would call the names of those who you have, have predestined for salvation, Lord, and that, that this funeral, Lord, you would just fill Scott and Mike with your words, Lord, that, that would be directed straight to the heart, straight to the souls of those who will be in attendance, Lord. I pray that those who, by this tragic event, have had their hope flushed from them, Lord, would just would just find hope in the truth of the gospel and that they would cling to you, Lord, and they would run to you and they would put all of their hope and all of their uh, confidence in you and, and reject all the things that their culture screams that they should put their confidence in, Lord. God, we pray for just a special touch of your spirit, a special anointing on those two men as they stand before a broken people and proclaim that there is life in Jesus, that there is peace in Jesus, that there is hope in Jesus. And so, Lord, we just commit this this moment in time, this moment in that nation to you and ask you, Lord, to be glorified as we know you will, Lord. We ask that you would, you would be lifted high and that uh, many would see and fear and put their trust in you, O oh God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm so glad that you're here today. I know uh, for most of you it would be true that this is a very busy season. Now, keep the amens to a low roar uh, when we talk about this being a busy season. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but I'm grateful that you've made time to uh, be here. And we... We want to never be a church that is guilty of missing the point of this season and and um, backing off. Instead, we want to uh, really, and that's what this this series that we're doing is about. We want to really focus on the meaning of this season, and not not just in a cliche way where we talk about the reason for the season, but we want to really consider what it means to us who are believers. Um, and for that reason, we are gathering um, for Christmas Eve and also on Christmas Day. Now, you may, if you're aware of the calendar, you might mean you might be aware that that means a gathering on Saturday and a gathering on Sunday. And so, we are going to have a, a, a fairly brief, by our standards, meeting. We'll be in and out in about an hour. But Saturday night, we're going to meet here at 6 p.m. And we're going to have something we've never done before. We're going to have a candlelight service at Northridge Life Service at Northridge Life Church, and it's going to be a really nice time of worship and a brief time in the Word, and um, just to really prepare your hearts for what this is all about. And then Sunday, um, we are not canceling services for Christmas. We're going to gather together and sing the songs of Zion and listen to the Word of God 
and celebrate like no other people the glory that is the coming of Christ. Amen. And so we hope that you'll be here with us. And um, and if you, you might think, well, I've got people in town. Well, bring your people. We would love to have them and love to meet them. So uh, and, and let them see uh, the priority that you place on being in the house of God. So uh, we, we hope you'll join us for that. It's going to be a great time. Um, also want to mention to you real quickly that uh, it's some of you who are looking at your bulletin and getting the emails know that our missions offering is coming up where we support people like Scott Walt and we, we support um, people like Wes White in Africa and, and uh, the other missionaries that we support. But we want to uh, uh, tell you that, that our, our missions offering coming up on January 8th. It'll be the, the fourth quarter missions offering. Every quarter we raise $6,000 for missions. None of that stays here. It all goes somewhere else. And we, uh, and, and we need your help to do that. We're about halfway there right now. So you can give any time between now and January 8th. Just make sure that you designate your, your uh, offering for missions and help us get there. That'll be finishing out 2022 in our missions giving. We didn't miss it by a penny this year. And we don't want to finish the year uh, by coming up short for our missionaries. And on that note, real exciting news, our only missionary that you guys have not met um, Wes White is going to be with us on Sunday, January 8th, the day we take the offering. That just kind of worked out in the providence of God. He's going to be here, and um, I'm super excited for you guys to get to meet him and uh, get to know him and about his work. So make sure that you're here on the 8th, and if you can, help us to reach that goal. We still need about $3,200 to reach our goal of 6000 for the quarter. Okay, enough of that. Let's jump into the message. Um, We're continuing our Advent series that we began last week by looking at the theology of some of our most beloved carols, our most beloved hymns of the season. And even though we live in a time where the celebration of Christmas has been overtaken by mostly secular rituals that have nothing to do with the reality of Christ's incarnation, It's important for us as believers, vitally important for us as believers, to recognize the reminders of Jesus that remain out in the open during this time of year. Nowhere else is this seen so obviously as it is in the songs that we hear in this season, the songs that are sung and the songs that are played. We sang some of them this morning. And the song that I would like to look at this morning... Uh, has an incredible evangelical pedigree. And it was originally written in 1739 by Charles Wesley. Some of you may be familiar with Charles Wesley. He was the brother of John Wesley, the father of Methodism. And, and he, he was a, a just a prolific evangelist, went all over Europe and, and, um, and it preached thousands and thousands of sermons to the result of many people coming to Christ. And Charles was his brother and his musical partner. Charles did the preaching. John did the preaching. Charles did the singing. And um, he wrote, Charles Wesley in his lifetime, wrote between 6,500 and 10,000 hymns. There are so many of them that no one agrees on the exact number of hymns that Charles Wesley wrote. That is a prolific life. 
Um, among these are songs that we sing around here. We sing the song, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. That was from the pen of Charles Wesley. We, he wrote another Christmas classic, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. All of this came from the mind, the heart, the pen of Charles Wesley. And our song today that I want to look at is a very familiar one, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And this song, and I've felt this way for years, is a beautiful presentation of the mystery of the incarnation of Christ, set to lyrics, set to song. This song, talking about its evangelical pedigree, was adapted by an associate of the Wesleys, another very famous evangelist in 1758, a little less than 20 years later after it was written. And this guy's name was George Whitfield. Anybody ever heard of George Whitfield? George Whitfield was, a, as I said, a close friend and associate of the Wesley brothers. The Wesley, they, they had a, a mild separation theologically. The Wesley brothers uh, embraced Arminianism, if that means anything to anybody here. And the, the uh, George Whitfield strongly embraced Reformed theology like we do here at Northridge. Um, but... Whitfield is considered by many to be one of the most influential and gifted preachers in American history. Now, he, he did kind of like the Wesleys. He also did things in Europe, but he, he spent a lot of time in America. And he preached, his, he's most famous for preaching in the open air uh, to crowds because he was so radical in his message, so controversial, because he wasn't just doing the normal kind of uh, church thing that was popular at that time, so he would just preach out in the open air. And thousands, crowds of thousands, would come to hear him. Now think about that. He's doing this in a day without one of these, without speakers in the halls, and he's doing it to a whole lot more people than I'm doing. I, I need to tell you all a dirty little secret. I am a big mouth. here, And, and if I turn this thing off, Nobody, even the people on the farthest back row, are going to have any trouble hearing me whatsoever. But if you, get, you know, shrunk to a crowd of, ten, or grew to a crowd of 10,000, those in the back might have a little bit of trouble hearing me. Not so with Whitfield. He preached to thousands. Benjamin Franklin loved to come hear George Whitfield. And though we have no record that Benjamin Franklin ever became a believer in Christ, he spoke highly of Whitfield and the, and the, the emotional impact that uh, Whitfield's words had on him. And so Whitfield, if you look at the history of American evangelism, Whitfield stands beside people like Dwight Moody and Billy Graham in the history of American preaching and the history of American revival. So so this song comes with fingerprints of some very influential, very well-respected people all over it. Now, it's a shame in my, again, in my humble opinion, Natalie, pay attention. It's a shame that this lyrically magnificent song is only dusted off in December. Have you ever felt that way about Christmas songs? That it, it, sometimes it's a shame that we only get around to them once the, you know, the weather turns colder and the lights go on the house. Its doctrinal content, no matter what time of the year, serves as a great reminder of what was involved in the birth of Christ. Beyond our mere sentimental considerations of the sweet baby Jesus that occupy the cultural consciousness, you know, everybody's comfortable with the sweet baby Jesus, am I right? 
No one's threatened by the sweet baby Jesus. The, in our culture, baby Jesus sadly has taken on almost a mythical quality. Why? Because a baby, by nature, is harmless. My baby grandson is on the back row over there, and, and he is adorable, and he makes you melt when you look at him. But he doesn't strike terror in the heart of anyone except maybe his parents at 3 a.m. Maybe under certain diaper conditions he might strike fear into their hearts. And that's why I say that the careless consideration of a baby in a manger can elicit many feelings in us that have nothing to do with worship. All they produce when we consider the sweet baby Jesus, no crying he makes, all that produces in us is a sentimental, emotional mindset that absolutely misses the point. What happened that night in Bethlehem was more akin to an invasion than, the run of, uh, than a run-of-the-mill birth of a child. It was an invasion. In that moment, when that baby's screams broke the night air, his cries broke the silence. All the powers of darkness were served notice that the time of their judgment was at hand. Humanity, in that baby's cries, were assured of its imminent liberation. That we were free because this baby had been born. While we would never reserve songs of the resurrection for Easter. We would never, I, you know, no pastor would ever tell a worship leader, hey, don't do that song. It talks about the resurrection. It's not Easter yet. We seem to do the exact opposite with the hymns that speak of the birth of Christ. And, and all that tells me is that we probably have far too low, far too sentimental of an opinion of what happened that night in Bethlehem. The familiar refrain of this song, Hark the Herald Angel Sings, it, it joyously recalls the annunciation of the birth of Christ by the angelic hosts of heaven. The lyrics don't simplistically remind us of the arrival of a cute cooing baby, but the long-awaited conquering king, one that is not to be adored for his cuteness, but worshipped for his glory and his majesty. Thus the opening line of the song, Hark, the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all you nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark, the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn King. In the ancient world, Harold was not a name that is shortened to Harry. Harold 
is the representative, representative of royalty. In a way, he's the press agent of royalty. He was sent to announce the king's message. That message might be, we've won the battle. That message might be, um, the prince has been born. But in this case, in the case of the birth of Christ, the king Yahweh has sent angelic heralds, angelic representatives to announce the fulfillment of all his good promises were at hand. The battle had been won. The prince had been born. The promised deliverance, promised so long ago, had come at last. We read the scriptural context for this beautiful hymn in Luke 2.8. Beautiful verse. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. Now pause right there. Think about what this amazing thing is going to, this amazing message is going to come to. Not King Herod, not the Roman representatives in in the country. It's coming to blue-collar shepherds. Guys like you and me. And they were there keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were filled with great fear. Yeah, I'll bet. They're standing there minding their own business, probably dozing off in the middle of the night. And all of a sudden, the sky becomes electric. The sky becomes alive. A nuclear explosion goes off. Light and power and glory. And, they, and, and all of a sudden, a representative of heaven itself is standing before them. And they're filled with great fear. But the angel said to them, Fear not. I'm not here to kill you guys. I bring you good news, the gospel, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, now get this, suddenly there was with the angel, the singular angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with, with whom he is pleased. So we go from one angelic representative, one messenger, to all of a sudden the sky is filled with an angelic choir. And this song points to all the high points of that angel's biblical message. First, it was the announcement of the birth of the son of David. We've talked about this over and over. We talked about it in our series on Mark. But he is Israel's rightful king. In fact, so much so that he is born in the city of David. The city that David had claimed for himself. This is symbolic of his royal rule. If it's David's city, guess what? By inheritance, it's his city. The king's purpose, we're told by the angels, was the salvation of mankind. God and sinners, as the song says, would be reconciled through the birth of a Savior. And that Savior would be Christ, the Lord. And... The salvation that was promised would not come through religious observance. It wouldn't come through the message of the Old Testament prophets to make a a beeline back to the law. It would come through 
An action that these shepherds could not fathom. Though the shepherds trembled, this was cause for celebration. This was cause for rejoicing, not fear. This was good news, the essence of the gospel. A Savior has appeared. And the news, this is the port, the, 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 the portion of their news, the angel's news, that we can have a tendency to read right over. Who is this news for? Well, this news wasn't for a single nation. It wasn't just for the shepherds. It wasn't even for the chosen people in the sense of the Jewish nation. But the angel said that this news was for all people, all the people. And this is why Wesley, in his beautiful hymn, he invites all the nations to join the triumph of the skies. What is being said here? The purpose of all the benefits and advantages given to the Jews would now be seen in the grace poured out through Christ to all the nations. Now, I see, if I have any perspective whatsoever, I see a lot of non-Jewish people before me. So you should be really excited that this was good news for all the people. Because your pagan ancestors, your, your sun-worshipping ancestors, in wherever nation you came from, have been invited into the good news. You, they've been invited into the gospel. They've been invited to put their trust in Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. Jew and Gentile, Greek and Jew, they're all included in the new covenant. And few of us think about the birth of Christ, as I've said, except in December. We kind of push it back to our mind and we wait to celebrate it. But Wesley, in this, in this song, he sees that the birth of Christ is the culmination, as he should, of the entire Old Testament. This baby is the seed of the woman prophesied in Genesis that would crush the head of the serpent. This baby is the root of Jesse, prophesied in Isaiah. This baby is the king who forever sits on the throne of David, prophesied in 2 Samuel. And this king, this baby, is the son of righteousness who rises with healing in his wings, prophesied in Malachi. All the prophecies, prophecies of the Old Testament find their fulfillment right in the manger in Bethlehem. It all comes together right there. We live in a time where the glory of this moment has been lost. It's been shuffled into the realm of the mythological. The, the Christ child sits alongside Santa Claus, Frosty the Snowman, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and all kinds of silly things. And that's the place that the child born in the manger occupies in our national mindset. His songs of triumph and praise are categorized with songs of childish fantasy and religious sentiment. What do I mean by that? If you listen to a, a, a streaming radio station of Christmas holiday classics, you get, you get Hark the Herald Angels Sing, followed by Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. We don't have a category for this, but Hark the Herald Angels Sing rouses us to the proper reflection. The birth of Christ is not a myth. The birth of Christ is not a fantasy, but it's cause for the church to rise in joyous worship, loudly proclaiming glory to the newborn king. 
And therefore, Wesley writes, Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold Him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. The cause for our wonder and our worship is seen in this second verse. In the course of human history, there have been many, many important babies born, but none compared to the arrival of this baby. This is because it wasn't just another human child that was delivered that night in Bethlehem. This baby was God himself. Christ by highest heaven adored opens for us a majesty that is almost too deep to grasp. This baby, delivered by a young Jewish virgin, was the eternal, omnipotent, holy prince of heaven, before whom cherubim and seraphim offered their worship every moment throughout eternity. Think about that. Think about blue-collar shepherds, a peasant girl, the young carpenter, staring into the eyes of God, the one who had for all, all of, of, I was about to say time, not time, far more than time, for all of eternity since those other creatures were created had been the object of their worship in heaven. Now sleeping, now crying in a manger surrounded by beasts. In John 17, Jesus spoke to the Father of the glory that he had shared with him before the world existed. In our text, Paul points back to a time before the Incarnation when he was in the form of God and the everlasting Lord. Everybody knows the preamble to the Gospel of John, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. Who is the Word? Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. So here is the Christ child. Surrounded by a donkey He made. A camel He made. A mother He made. And a father He made. Here we have Christ represented in this passage that we read this morning. In all of his pre-incarnate glory, alongside, identified as God himself, the active agent in the creation of the cosmos, co-equal and co-essential with God himself. But as Galatians says, and we read last week, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption. The time was fulfilled that night in Bethlehem, And Christ made his appearance. Though he was, by all appearances, a normal squirming baby boy, he was so much more. Paul tells us in that passage from this morning that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. The Son of God mysteriously took on human flesh and soul, Godhead veiled in flesh. And though he was fully human, the incarnation did not mean that he was less than God. Colossians tells us, For in him 
the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So in that tiny little baby was all of God. Think about that for a minute. Think with awe at what that meant, what the implications of that are. All that God is dwelt in that human baby born that night. And this is the greatest discovery, that this little baby was fully human. Though all of God dwelt inside of him, he was fully human. He was born of a woman. He was perfectly normal human body, but he was also God. He was perfect in power and holiness and worthy of all worship. He was not a mixture, a blending of God and man or a dilution of either nature to accommodate the other. He was perfectly God and perfectly man. And the church has taught that for 2,000 years. It was his joy and pleasure to dwell among us as man with men. And he shared our nature, as we said in the confession this morning, except without sin. Our experiences, our emotions, our temptations. Humanity had only known this God before, now, as Yahweh or Adonai. God above us, to be only feared. But in this moment, in this moment in Bethlehem, we would now experience him as Emmanuel. God with us. Sharing our pains and our trials, our struggles and our circumstances. One of us. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, Wesley writes. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings. Risen with healing in His wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that men no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. The history of human religion is filled with tales of gods coming down and visiting humanity, often experiencing different aspects of what it means to be human. But they were never quite represented as fully human. Never has deity taken on the human condition to experience it fully. In other traditions, the gods may visit us, but they remained apart, even in their visitations. Not so with Christ. He became like us to save us to the uttermost from what troubles us. By bridging the gap between the human and the divine, he became for us the Prince of Peace. He declared for us a cessation of hostilities between us and a holy, sinless God. As I've said, he is the Son of Righteousness who brings healing to the human race. He's the light of the world. He declared himself to be the way, the truth, the life. He laid aside his heavenly glories for our benefit. Paul puts it like this, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was born not to live as you and I are, we live to the glory of God, but he was born for the express purpose of dying on the cross for our salvation. The inexhaustible, inextinguishable God willingly humbled himself, suffered 
and died in his humanity in order to pay the penalty for human sin for all who would believe in his name. Romans tells us that the just wages for all of our sinning is what? Death. But the death of Christ had an amazing effect. Because of his purity, because of his holiness, the death of Christ erased all of death's claim on us. And aren't you glad? We are no longer, as believers in Jesus Christ, to fear death's threat. But Christ's work doesn't just release us from our lifelong fear of death. It gives us the promise that we mustn't exist in our lifelong slavery to sin anymore. We can be reborn to a new and living hope through Christ's obedient death on the cross. In fact, this is how Peter says it. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Because of Christ's work, we are free. Free from the harassment of the devil. Free from the clutches of sin. Free from the threat of death. And this is all because of the entrance of God in human flesh in the form of a baby to our world. May the wonder of the Incarnation stir praise within us. May we reject the mythological view of this most important moment in human history. And may we turn and worship over and over again to the victorious King of Kings and Lord of Lords who saved us. Christians should fight, but not with the culture. That's usually what we do. We usually want to jump in the, jump in the ring with the culture. But we should, we should fight with the pull of the cultural allurements within ourselves to distract us from the glory that the season points to. We shouldn't let the silliness of much that is put forth at this time push us from our joyful declarations of truth and our heartfelt, honest worship. We should heed the invitation to worship issued by the angelic host to a bunch of Jewish shepherds not for the hope of something that's going to happen, but in our case, the joy of something that has happened. The joy that is fulfilled. The work that is fulfilled. And so my prayer and hope is that we, as we sing these songs and we review the story of the nativity, that it won't get neglected in our minds or relegated in our minds to some seasonal place but that we'll return often to Luke chapter 2. That we'll return often to Matthew chapters 1 and 2 and consider the deep mystery, the deep meaning of this story. And that meaning is captured for us in a single verse by John. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. My prayer is that you'll recall this mystery of the incarnation of Christ as you sing the songs of the season, and that you won't be afraid to incorporate these songs in your moments of praise, January through November. It's okay. You can do it. <laughs> it's not against the rules. You won't be called for church discipline if we hear you singing Heart the Herald Angels singing in June. 
I promise. We pray that these truths will always produce praise in your heart. May we be a people who joined those shepherds who first heard the angel's announcement and went into the city to do what? To search diligently for the child. May all of our lives be a searching diligently for Christ in His truth and in His glory all around us. May we be a people who search out the Scriptures and our hearts to find Christ, the incarnate King, who died to give us second birth and who lives evermore. Would you stand with me? Lord, we thank you for the truth that your scripture lays out, Lord, that you you showed up, you kept your promises, you fulfilled the prophecies, and you came to reconcile us to God from whom we had been estranged, not by an action of God, but by our own sin, by our own rebellion, by our own constant refusal to acknowledge, to worship, to obey you. And you sent a Savior who in spite of ourselves did all of that for us and granted us the greatest gift we will ever receive, the gift of your very own righteousness, the gift of your forgiveness. And so now we can be reconciled to our Father through faith in the Son. So Lord, help us not to miss what happened on that Bethlehem night, but to worship you, to praise you, to give you thanks, to give you glory. And may our voices be found continually singing with the angels. Glory to the newborn King. Amen. I think this story would be for us more fantasy and more myth if it ended in a manger. But as you know, it didn't. It proceeded in a perfect life, growing in stature and favor with God and men, teaching, doing miracles, living flawlessly according to the law of God until the day when Christ entered Jerusalem and laid down his life, a substitute, an atoning sacrifice for the sins of people like us. But death, being God, he was not corrupted by it. It didn't hold him. Out of that tomb, he walked three days later. And every Sunday, we have an opportunity to remember his sacrifice and his victory around the table of the Lord. I'm going to invite our, our communion helpers to come. And um, we are going to receive joyously with glory to the newborn king. We're, gonna, we're going to receive the, uh, the uh, uh, offering of this, uh, this sacrifice, this, this meal, um, this remembrance, this covenant renewal um, to give glory to God today. And so uh, we invite you to come if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, don't come. It won't mean anything to you. Stay in your seat. But talk to me after the service. I want to invite you to know and to benefit from knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, as the one who washes away the guilt of your sin. For the rest of you, come and, and receive your elements. Take them back to your seat, and we'll take them together in just a moment.
The Apostle Paul writes for us, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the, of the bread together. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake of the cup together. Now let's give thanks. Father, thank you for the inexpressible gift of Christ. Thank you that you sent him to take our place, to carry our burden, to wash away our sins. And thank you now that he is gone to prepare a place for us in your presence, to make our tabernacle with you as you make your tabernacle with us. God, help us to live in anticipation of that day, to live in the wonder of what you have done, and to give you thanks, and to give you glory, and to live lives of worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to do, as Paul Harvey famously said decades ago, I want to tell you the rest of the story. Doesn't end in a manger. Doesn't end on a cross. Doesn't even end with an empty tomb. This is how it ends. John writes, Then I looked and I heard around the throne... And the living creatures and the elders and the voices of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that was in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.